I remember when I first started going to church, I didn't know anything about the Bible. I was 16, 17 years old the first few times I went, and I legitimately had no clue how to make sense out of the Bible. I couldn't tell you the difference of, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. No clue what that meant. Why was one old and why was one new? What was the dividing line? It's the birth of Jesus, in case you're wondering. But I didn't know that. I had no idea. I also didn't understand why there were three Johns in a row in the Bible. Did you know that? It's 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. And like, I didn't understand if it was a trilogy like the Matrix, you know? It was Lord of the Rings or something, and I was expecting this big, epic, three-part story, and then I ended up disappointed. Um, I was like, did he not get it all right, the first two letters? And so he had to write the third draft. I just didn't understand anything about the Bible. I struggled so hard to make sense out of it, heads or tails. And I wonder if any of you guys have ever been there. Yeah, I know a few of you guys have. Some of you know the Bible perfectly. I get it. But some of you, you know exactly where I'm coming from. But here's what I found very interesting. Over time, I began to realize that I actually knew some of the Bible without realizing that I knew any of the Bible. It was so interesting. As I spent time in church or as I opened up the Bible and read it a little bit for myself, I started to come across things that I'm like, oh, you know, I've heard of that before. That sounds really familiar. I had never read the Bible previously, but yet somehow these stories, they made sense. They resonated. It was like a little bit of deja vu. And what I came to realize was that I had absorbed certain stories from the culture around me and that the culture around me had actually taken these stories from the Bible itself. And so these stories, these sayings, these different parts of the Bible have made Made their way into our collective consciousness, to who we are as a group of people, and then we've just slowly absorbed them over time. Things that we never knew were a part of the Bible. We know these stories, we know these sayings, and we don't realize that they actually come from the Bible. This morning, we're going to be talking about one of those stories, a really, really interesting story, perhaps the most powerful parable that Jesus told during his three years of ministry. We are on the final week of our series, We Can't Stay Here, and we're talking about where God is calling us to go as individuals and also as a church. And this story that Jesus tells, it's going to be very familiar. And I believe it's very powerful. It has the power to help you see how to get from here to there. How we as a church are going to go from where we are to where God wants us to be. And here's what's cool. Even if you don't know the Bible at all, you're going to be pretty familiar with this story. It's going to resonate because even if you don't know anything about the scripture, you've heard this story before. In fact, I, I did a quick study, a quick search, and I found out that the Calgary Herald refers to this story of Jesus like a hundred times on its website. It does. Now, they never say, Jesus told a story that relates to this news story we're telling you, but they use a phrase, they reference this story that as soon as you hear it, you're going to be like, oh yeah, definitely, I've heard that before. This parable, this story that Jesus tells, it forms the plot of thousands of TV shows and movies. You even hear it come up in songs. Like, this is a narrative, this is a story that has just seeped into our consciousness. And in fact, I'll tell you, this story has shaped your ideas of right and wrong, good and evil, justice and injustice, whether you realize it or not. 
It is a story that has that sort of power behind it. And more importantly, you guys, it tells us everything we need to know about following Jesus, even into the 21st century. Does anybody have any idea what story I'm talking about? The Good Samaritan, the parable of the Good Samaritan. I heard a couple people say it, some fist pumps in the back. You guys got it right. Gold star for you. The story of the Good Samaritan. So you've certainly heard Good Samaritan before. You've heard that on news stories. Maybe you had a Good Samaritan at some point in your life or you got to be a Good Samaritan. You didn't even realize it, but that phrase and the idea of somebody coming to somebody's rescue is actually told by Jesus in Luke chapter number 10. So... We're going to dive into this story, and what we're going to do is we're just going to walk through it verse by verse. We're just going to go a little ways. We'll stop. We'll explain a few things, and uh, we'll keep moving through the story. So it starts in Luke chapter number 10, verse 25, and look at what Jesus says here. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I want to pause here for just a sec because there are a couple of words that are really key to understanding the dialogue, the exchange that's about to happen. First thing we see is that this is an expert in the religious law. This is a very religious person. He knows the Bible backwards and forwards. He's probably got degrees. He loves to show off how much he knows about the Bible. And so when he asks this question, the scriptures point out to us he's not asking from sincere motives. He's asking because he wants to test Jesus. What he's trying to see is if Jesus is going to be faithful to his interpretation, to his understanding of what the scriptures say. So this is going to be a bit of an adversarial conversation in some ways. Jesus is going to call him out, and by extension, he's going to call us out too, because this is the way that the tone that this guy sets up when he asks this question, teacher, what good thing should I do to inherit eternal life? So in verse 26, Jesus replied, well, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? Meaning, what do the first five books of the Old Testament tell you? How do you think you get eternal life? What does it mean to be a follower of God? And the man answered, you must first love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. And second, you should love your neighbor as yourself. Now, these are two passages that are found in the Old Testament. He mashes them up together, and that's okay. In fact, in several other places in the scripture, Jesus uses these exact same words. It's possible that this religious uh, uh, teacher of the law here who's testing Jesus had heard Jesus teach in times past. And he's like, I know the right answer to this one because I already heard him give it earlier. And so he says what Jesus had said. You're supposed to love God with all of your heart, and you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus says in verse 28, that's right, do this and you will live. Look, we we don't have time to get into all of this, but can I just tell you, this is the heart of the Christian religion. This is what it means to follow after Jesus. If you were to boil it all down, if you were to take all 66 books of the Bible, this big, giant, thick book here, if you were to break it all the way down, you could summarize it in these two short sentences. All God wants from you, all God wants from any of us is to love God with our whole heart and to love our neighbor as ourself. If we would do that, Jesus actually tells us we would fulfill every single one of the commands and teachings that's in the Bible. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Your entire faith, the entire teaching of Jesus can be summarized in just a couple of sentences. So Jesus says, that's right, do this 
and you will live. But, the Bible tells us, the man wanted to justify his actions because he knew he didn't measure up. For all his talk, for all of his study, being an expert in the religious law, he wasn't living it out. That's pretty clear. So he wants to justify his actions, and he says to Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? Because if I can kind of say, well, that's not my neighbor, and that kind of person isn't my neighbor, then I don't really have to love them as myself, right, Jesus? And so in response, Jesus replies with a story. This is the parable of the Good Samaritan. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him up, and they left him half dead beside the road. Now, we're going to read the rest of the parable here in a moment, but let me catch you up to speed on what we've been talking about. Each week in this series, we've looked at a different parable that Jesus told. And we've told you all along that a parable is a short story with a big meaning. It's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It is a a fictional scenario that Jesus made up that is designed to teach you something about yourself and God. Okay, And so he starts by telling us a story of a Jewish man who's leaving the city of Jerusalem and going to the city of Jericho. Anybody ever been to Israel? Any of our people here? No, me either. I'd love to go. Uh, Maybe we can get a trip together sometime. I don't know. It'd be fun. But because I wasn't totally sure where Jerusalem and Jericho were in relation to each other, I pulled up a map and I thought maybe you'd appreciate this. So you see here Israel is the country next to the Mediterranean Sea. And you can kind of see where the box is there. That's Jerusalem. And then immediately to the northeast, uh, you see a dotted line going to the city of Jericho. Now, Jerusalem is the capital city. This is the, the center of the country. And Jericho is a bit of a suburb, but here's the deal. Jericho was 17 miles away. And remember, they didn't have Uber back then. So you had to walk anywhere you wanted to go. It was a long journey. Not only was it a long journey, but it was actually a very dangerous journey because it was a very windy mountain road that went through the middle of Nowheresville. And so what happened is there were a lot of bandits, bandits, a lot of robbers, a lot of thieves, a lot of very dangerous people that would ambush travelers on this road to Jericho. In fact, there was one section of the road that was so dangerous, they called it the blood pass because the odds of getting attacked there were really, really high. You didn't go down there unless you absolutely had to. So this story that Jesus begins to tell about a man who's traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho and he gets ambushed by dangerous people, this was a story that everybody in his crowd would have been like, oh, yep, 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 for sure. It's like going to Edmonton. You just know bad stuff's gonna happen, right? (laughs) I love it when I get to pick on Edmonton. It's so much fun. I love the city. I was just there yesterday. It's a lot of fun. Um, So here's the thing. Jesus tells a story and he sets it in a very familiar setting. And so the scripture says that he tells the story of a Jewish man who traveled from Jerusalem down to Jericho. He was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him up and they left him half dead beside the road. I mean, this was a bad situation for the man, wasn't it? This was not a good thing. This was a life or death matter. And if somebody didn't intervene, there was a really good chance that this man would die. So look at verse number 31. The scripture tells us, by chance, by chance, a priest came along. And you're thinking to yourself, and the Israelites who heard this story are thinking to themselves, 
Oh, thank goodness. A priest. Of course the priest is going to go help this guy. That's what priests do, right? They get paid to help people. You couldn't imagine a priest walking down the road and not helping the person who's been uh, attacked. So it says, a priest came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed over to the other side of the road and he passed him by. Oh, Wait a sec. That's not how a priest is supposed to behave, is it? Like, what a dirty move, man. Jerk face McJerkyson to just see a guy who is nearly dead and you're like, nah, I ain't got time for that. And just keep walking. I mean, was this priest just an evil man? Like, like there are bad priests. I mean, there, you know, there are bad law enforcement. There's bad teachers, bad everybody. Maybe he was just one bad apple. Maybe that was his problem. I don't think so. I think there's something a little deeper, something a little more nuanced, and unfortunately just as tragic that, that is happening here. See, if you study first century Israel, here's what you find out. Temple priests used to work a two and a one shift. So they would work two weeks in the temple in Jerusalem, and then they would be off for a week. I mean, some of you guys work similar shifts at your job, and then they'd be back on for two weeks and off again. And most of the priests lived in Jericho. That was kind of the priestly enclave. They had their own little neighborhood. They all lived near each other. And so what is entirely possible here is that this priest is on his way home. And it's a 17-mile journey, and he's about to have one week with his friends or his family or whatever the case was, and he's on his way home. Now, one other thing you have to know is that in the Old Testament law, if you were to come across a dead body and you touched it, you would become unclean. And that word unclean, it simply means that you would have to go back to the temple, you would have to go through a purification ritual, and then after a day or two, you could be sent on your way. And they did this for a bunch of different reasons. Partially, it was because they didn't understand germ theory. And so if you touch dead things, there's a chance you're going to spread that. And so part of this cleansing ritual was really to curb the spread of disease. There were also some theological implications behind it. And so here's what I think is going on. The priest is walking back home. He's about to have his week off and he's well on his journey and he sees a guy who's half dead and he thinks to himself, "Uh uh-oh, if I go over there and I get too close and it turns out the dude's dead, guess what's gonna have to happen? I'm gonna have to turn around and go back to the temple. I'm gonna have to sacrifice a heifer. I'm going to have to do the purification ritual. By the time I get all that done, I might as well not even go home. And so... There's this really ironic thing that happens here with the priest. That is, his religion prevents him from doing what God said. See, the the thing that God wanted him to do was to love his neighbor as himself. And if he were dead on the side of the road or nearly dead, he would want somebody, anybody, please, I don't care what it takes, help. But this guy, he pulls out the Old Testament He pulls out some scripture and he says, well, I'm going to kind of twist and shuffle and move around and justify so that I don't have to help this guy. Look, if there was anybody that should have stopped and helped, it should have been the priest. I mean, the priest is the person at the top of the list that you would have expected to offer aid to this poor guy who was ambushed and left nearly to dead. But you know what? 
I've just discovered as a pastor that this idea that we can take the scripture and twist it and use it to justify whatever the heck we want, it still goes on today, doesn't it? I'm shocked at the number of people who will use scripture to justify doing whatever they want. They're followers of Jesus, and yet they'll say, oh, well, you know, if I read this verse this way, that means that I can go have sex with who I want, or I can spend my money however I want, or I can choose not to serve because, gosh, I just need a season off. I mean, like, we can twist and justify and, and go against what we know God clearly says, and unfortunately, we have a tendency to use his word to prevent us from doing what he's clearly told us to do. Let me just challenge you. I mean, if there's any part of your life, and and I think as followers of Jesus, we just know this deep down inside. We know when we're twisting the scripture so that it justifies and says what we want it to say instead of what it should say or what we should be doing. If you're doing that, can I say the point Jesus is making here is that you're not any better than this priest, that there are people who are suffering around you. There are people who need help. And if you're not careful, you can get so wrapped up in your religion and following God in a way that's comfortable and easy and doesn't ask too much of you while people around you suffer, while people around you die. And we just go on about our business like, uh, it would just be too much trouble for me to get involved. Listen, I don't know what your faith, faith background is. I don't know if you consider yourself Christian. I don't know if you're a seeker. You're like, oh, I'm here because I'm trying to check this out. And by the way, next week I'll be at the Sikh temple and one day I'm gonna go to a Buddhist temple and I'm just trying to figure it all out. I don't know what your background is, but can I tell you, if your religion leads you to do anything other than loving God and loving your neighbor, you should ditch it. Hey, if your Christianity leads you to do anything besides loving your neighbor as yourself and loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you should ditch it because it's not bringing you closer to God. It's actually bringing you further away from the heart of the Father. Okay, so this poor guy is nearly dead on the side of the road. A priest walks by and he's got nothing to offer. Then the scripture tells us in verse number 32, that a temple assistant, or some translations call it a Levite, he walked over and he looked at the man lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Now, this was like a, a, a volunteer or a servant in the temple. We might say this is a dream teamer if we want to use our own language here at Connect. Like somebody who was very actively involved in the church and they're following along and they see the man who needs help. And they go over and take a peek, but decide, no, I don't want to get involved and pass by on the other side. I don't know. Was he just following the priest's lead? Was he like, well, if the priest isn't going to do it, then I guess I shouldn't either. I mean, maybe that's what's going on. And if so, gosh, that's a warning to those of us in leadership, isn't it? That people will follow what we do. We set the tone. We set the example. That's true in the church. It's true in your marriage, by the way. It's true in your business. It's true in our society. People will follow whoever or whatever those with influence do. So if you have influence, you have a responsibility to steward it well. Whatever that means, specifically for the kingdom of God, you have a responsibility to lead others to love their neighbor as themselves and to love God with all of their heart. I don't know, maybe the temple assistant was just busy. Maybe they had, you know, a lot on their calendar or they didn't have any money so they didn't feel like they could help. I mean, maybe there was a resource issue. Maybe they were just making excuses. I don't know. But here's what Jesus is gonna set us up to learn from this passage. This is such a key principle. He repeats it like seven times throughout his life in ministry. And that is, if I cannot love my neighbor whom I can see, 
How could I possibly love God who I cannot see? This is what Jesus is teaching here. When the priest walks by, this priest who had dedicated his life to serving God, he loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, at least in word. But when it came to loving his neighbor as himself, he wasn't interested. And what Jesus says about both the priest and the Levite, both the paid staff and the volunteer, both the super Christian and the guy trying to become the super Christian, what he says about both of them is that if they do not love their neighbor as themselves, they don't really love God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Mm. Okay, so one guy walks by, fails the test, the religious guy. Isn't it weird that the most religious person made the least helpful choice in this situation? Then a Levite, a volunteer, somebody, a temple servant walks by and decides the same thing. And finally, we get to the third person, Verse 33, Jesus says, Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Can I tell you what Jews expected when Jesus started this story? They actually expected the priest to come by and to do the wrong thing. They expected that. Because that's kind of how things were in their day. They expected the temple assistant to come by and do the wrong thing. But you know what they were waiting for? As normal Jewish men in their society, they were waiting for Jesus to say, then a normal Jewish man came along and made the situation right. Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, he shocks them. He angers them because he says a despised Samaritan comes along and we're gonna find out he does the right thing. Now, first of all, who or what is a Samaritan, and why in the world would they be despised? Okay, I'm gonna put another map, same map we actually we just looked at here. Um, I'm gonna put it back up on the screen, and what you'll see here is the country of Israel. It's kind of long and skinny, sort of like a rectangle, and in the south, you have what we call the province of Judea. That's where the capital city of Jerusalem was. That's where um, uh, Bethany was, if you're familiar with that. Bethlehem is there. Then way up north, you see the province of Galilee. And Galilee is where Jesus did a great deal of his ministry. In fact, nearly all of his disciples came from the northern part of the country. And smack dab in the middle between these two provinces was a third province called Samaria. And people who were from Samaria were known as Samaritans. Now, here's the reason why the Samaritans were despised. Several hundred years before the events of this story in Luke chapter number 10 happened, there was a neighboring nation in the Middle East that came down and they attacked Israel. And they conquered this section of the country called Samaria. And they deported or killed nearly all of the Jews. And they took other people from other sections of the Middle East that they had conquered. And they imported them into the land so that they could remain and retain in control. And what happened is over the course of a few hundred years... The Jews who still lived in the area began to intermarry with the Samaritans who were, you know, exiles and imports from other parts of the world who brought in their own language, their own cultures, and most specifically their own religion. And so by the time of the first century when Jesus comes along and we're talking Israelites and Jewish people and Samaritans, the Samaritans and the Jews hate each other. 
They really hate each other because Jews look at Samaritans as what we would call half-breeds or half-Jews. They were not full in. They were kind of pagan. They didn't follow the law of Moses exactly the way that they should. And so there was a lot of bad blood. Samaritans, even if they claimed to be Jewish, were not allowed to go to Jerusalem and worship at the temple. Despite the fact that their ancestors were Jewish, they weren't allowed to go. In fact, Jewish people, if they wanted to go from Judea to Galilee, the the, the shortest distance between any two points is what? A straight line. So you would think they would just jump on the road and head north right through Samaria. They hated Samaritans so much that they would cross to the east over the Jordan River. They would go north through this other area called the Decapolis and then back around so that they didn't have to go through Samaria. Some of you guys avoid Edmonton like that. Yeah. Okay. A despised Samaritan comes along. Somebody the Jews hated. Somebody who wasn't religious in the way that the Jews were. Somebody who didn't have the right understanding of the Bible. Somebody who would not have been considered a child, a person of the promise. The scripture says a despised Samaritan came along. And when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. That's a really key statement. Because if you go back and you read earlier, the priest never felt anything for the guy on the side of the road. He saw him, but he felt nothing. The the temple assistant, he walked over and looked, but the Bible says nothing about how he felt. He didn't care that there was somebody around him in need. He just went on about his way. This guy, though, was different because when he went and looked, he felt compassion. It was like a gut punch. His heart hurt for this guy to the point that he couldn't walk by and say, oh, somebody else has got to get plugged in. Somebody else has got to get involved here. He had to do something about the situation that he saw. Now, listen, the reason that Jesus chose a Samaritan as the hero of this story is to communicate something fundamental about what it means to be his follower. That in the gospel, that through Jesus in God, all divisions among us are torn down. That we are all equal before God. That any racial division any ethnic division, any economic division, any gender division, any age division, any language division, none of it matters in God's kingdom. That there is nothing in those categories that would exclude you from God's love. So you say to yourself, I don't know if I fit in here because I'm this or I'm that and I'm not that and I'm not this. Can I just tell you, when Jesus talks about Samaritans as the heroes, he's communicating something to the religious people that in Christ, there is no male, no female. There is no Jew. There is no Gentile. There's no old. There's no young. There's no rich. There's no poor. There is no designation or characteristic that would disqualify you from loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is calling out the religious people because of their lack of love for their neighbor. And hey, listen, he's calling you and I out too if we have a lack of love for our neighbor. If there is somebody in your life and you can't stand, you just hate them, you want them gone because they're a jerk and they deserve it, or because they're some type of person that you just don't like. Can I tell you 
The principle here is that you love Jesus as much as the person you love least. You love Jesus as much as the person you love least. Whoever that is, it could be a single person that you struggle to love, or it could be a type of person that for whatever reason you've just got problems and issues with. Jesus calls us to love our neighbor as ourself. And if there is somebody that we don't love to that degree, that's really how much we love Jesus. In another part of Jesus' teachings, he says, in as much as you've done something to the least of these people in your society, you have also done the same to me. You love Jesus as much as the person that you love least. And that's because every single person, no matter who they are, where they come from, what they have or what they don't have, every single person bears the image of God. Every single person. There is not one person on the planet that does not bear the image of God. The best person you know and the worst person you know. They bear the image of God, and they can be a hero in a story if they'll commit their lives to Jesus, if they'll love God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and if they'll love their neighbor as themselves. So can I challenge you for just a moment? I'm not speaking to anybody in particular here, but listen, if there is somebody that you're beefing with, whether it's in the church or at your work or wherever it might be, the thing that's supposed to mark you as a follower of Jesus is love for your neighbor. It is unity behind the idea that every person is created by God, they are known by God, and they are loved by God. So if God loves them, we should too. All right, I'm going to wrap this up here pretty quick. The despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Verse 34 says, going to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged the wounds. The scripture tells us, that he put the man on his own donkey and he took him to an inn where he took care of the man. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins. One silver coin was about a day's wage in their world. So he handed him two days worth of salary. Figure out what two days of your pay is and that's how much it costs to take care of this guy. He handed the innkeeper two silver coins telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time that I'm here. Listen, the Samaritan proved that he loved his neighbor as himself because he was willing to, to go out of his way. He was willing to spend his resources. He was, it cost him something in order to take care of this guy. And he didn't care about the cost. He disregarded the cost. He said, the cost is not what's important. What's important here is that I love this man the way I'm supposed to. What's important is this man gets the help that he needs. That's what the Samaritan does. And so Jesus finishes up this conversation. He asks the original expert in the law who was testing him that precipitated this whole story. He says, now, dude, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Right? It's the obvious one. It's kind of interesting here that he won't even say Samaritan. It's almost like he's still not a Samaritan. The one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, that's right. Now you go and do the same. The big point, the thing that I think Jesus wants to communicate, I mean, there are lots of little things like the, the breakdown of divisions and the fact that we're supposed to be known for unity and love as a group of people. But I mean, kind of the point that Jesus is really trying to drive home here is that saved people serve people. Saved people serve people. 
And if you're not willing to serve people, then you might want to be cautious about how you run around talking about how saved you are. (laughs) Because when our hearts are transformed by the love of God, we can't help but be transformed towards other people around us. Saved people serve people. Saved people don't sit around. Saved people don't ignore the opportunities and the issues and the problems that are in their life that they should address. Saved people serve people, even people they don't like, even people that are tough to like, even people from Edmonton. It is like every single person on the planet should be served and loved by us because we have been served and loved by Jesus. That's the the point of this parable. Now, it's been cool so far. It's about to get real good. See, because I've told you all through this series in every parable that Jesus tells, you are represented by someone in the story and God is represented by someone in the story, right? There's a character that's supposed to represent you and you're supposed to learn, excuse me, learn from them. And there's a character that is supposed to be represented by God and you're supposed to learn from that character. Now, I preach this message the way I have on purpose, the way that any of you would read it. You would read this story and say, well, I'm the good Samaritan, of course. I'm the one who's supposed to love and serve. I'm the one that's supposed to do the right thing. I'm the one that's supposed to get involved even if it costs me something. I'm a saved person who's supposed to serve other people. Yes, that is so true. But in five minutes, can I flip this parable on its head and show you a meaning that is far better than anything like that? What if God really is represented in this parable? See, if you are the good Samaritan, Where's God in this story? I'm not 100% sure he shows up, but if you, if you don't see yourself as the hero, if you don't put yourself in the shoes of the good Samaritan, who else is there? Well, you could be the robber, I guess, but I'm gonna assume that none of you guys are the robbers. That means that if we read this parable correctly, you and I are the wounded, attacked, half-dead person. And where God shows up, is as the good Samaritan who comes to our aid. Listen, when I tell you save people, serve people, when I tell you that you can make a difference in the world, it's because in doing so, you're following the example of Jesus, your savior. He is the good Samaritan. Listen, I wasn't half dead physically on the side of the road. I was totally dead spiritually. I had no help for myself. I could not save myself. I could not get out of the rut I was in. I was addicted to this and I was struggling to that. I had no hope, no purpose, and I assumed I'd end up in jail just like my dad. That's what I thought my life had in store for me. Then Jesus came to my rescue because as we've said all this month, God searches and God saves and then God celebrates when he's found somebody. When I was physically, uh, rather spiritually dead on the side of the road, the true good Samaritan came to my rescue and he came to yours too. When everybody else turned their back, when religion says, oh no, you need to get up out of the ditch and go do all the right things, take care of yourself. And you're like, I can't, I'm half dead on the side of the road. I need somebody to rescue me. The good Samaritan showed up. And 
In the same way that this good Samaritan put the poor guy on the donkey and carried him, the scripture teaches us that Jesus bore our sins on his own back. He carried the weight of our brokenness. Then, as this good Samaritan disregarded the cost, and he said, I'll pay whatever I have to pay so that they can be healed, so that they can be restored, so that they can live life overflowing, that is precisely what Jesus did for me and for you. Do you know what Mark chapter number 10 says? Mark chapter number 10 says about Jesus, for even the son of God came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a payment for the many. Jesus is the ultimate good Samaritan. So look, I'm not gonna tell you that you should serve people, that you should get involved on the dream team and make a difference. I'm not gonna tell you that to do those things so that you can justify yourself. Remember, that's what the original Pharisee, the original teacher of the law was trying to do in this passage. I'm not gonna tell you that. I'm gonna tell you to get involved, to make a difference, to serve people, to get rid of all disunity and hatred in your heart because that's precisely what Jesus did for you. Listen, if the gospel has rescued you, if it has transformed you from the inside out, if it has given you new life, new love, new purpose and new hope, then you have no choice but to offer it to somebody else. And if you won't, or if you don't, then I want you to be real careful running around talking about how saved you are. Because saved people serve people because saved people were served by the Savior. Oh, this parable is so deep, so rich, so powerful. It has transformed societies for thousands of years. That's all well and good. I hope it continues to transform societies, but it should also transform your heart. You should also see yourself as the person in need of rescue and see Jesus as the one who's offering you the rescue that you cannot find anywhere else. 